Well, good morning or afternoon or evening for whoever's listening to this Contrast Church. Uh, it's so funny because our audio, unfortunately, did not record correctly on Sunday. So here I am Monday uh, redoing this teaching for the podcast. And as I was doing, looking into the software for this, I noticed that the exact same thing happened over a year ago. And in that teaching, I said, hey, we're still a church plant, so I think we get that excuse for at least another year. And uh, funny enough, it's been slightly over a year since that happened last time. So we're no longer at excuse. This just sucks, and it is the way it is. But uh, we care about our teachings and putting them up for you guys who honestly in the summer are just gone, whether it's vacation or friends or weddings or whatever. So uh, I, I actually am, am grateful in one way, and that is that uh, Sunday was a big day for us, and we I not only taught, but gave kind of our presentation on uh, this new endeavor that we're on a capital campaign to buy a building by the end of the year. So that's really exciting, but my brain was definitely in two different places. And uh, to, to add on top of that, this passage that we're going to talk about is probably one of the hardest passages in all of James, uh, probably the most formative and yeah, also most controversial. So I may be a little relieved that I can look at my notes a little more uh, doing this because you can't see me. So let's just uh, let's just jump right in, and uh, I hope that this encourages you, and uh, that I can feel like I maybe delivered this a little more succinct. We'll have some a couple photos. I used the whiteboard. It was whiteboard Sunday, so if you're wanting that, we'll have that on the website with this that you can look at because it'll be kind of confusing as I get into talking about that and uh, what that looks like. But today is week four of the book of James. We've been going through uh, the book of James. It's a letter written to a bunch of churches outside of the Jerusalem church area. And the best way to think about it is if you know you go to Washington, D.C., they write policies that affect the entire uh, you know federal law and, and government um, and are have an authoritative reality to them that affects the whole United States. And so Jerusalem was just like that. It was the kind of OG church of Jesus followers, and they're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in light of what was being following the Jewish law, and and then even Gentiles who weren't Jewish, how do they follow Jesus, and what do they need to do, what don't they need to do, and so there's just a lot of figuring that out, and James is writing some things that um, best described, in my opinion, as uh, Christians going cattywampus, or just not doing things correctly or veering off the wrong course or just needing to stay f- just to hold fast to the reality of of just what it means to follow Jesus. So James is incredibly practical. He packs a punch with his words and he doesn't hold back and it's encouraging for us because sometimes we just need that. And so this is week four. The last three weeks uh, I got to kick off the first week and this is all going to matter because it's going gonna, it's gonna to play directly into what we're going to talk about today. So I promise you this, this kind of thorough review matters. But Week one, we uh, James opens opens up with talking about um, basically this reality that was going on for Christians at the time who were basically saying, "I want to follow Jesus," and then immediately dealing with that decision having economic effects on their business, on their family, on their jobs, on their well-being, and it was a real thing. Uh, if you decide to follow Jesus today, you don't necessarily you know, you don't get baptized and then you lose half your clients. That's just not really how it works in America. We are we are persecuted in certain ways, but certainly not at the level and the severity of those who were following Jesus in the first in the first century church. And also we're under, you know, Roman oppression. 
uh, or maybe they were just they were a smaller business and so it was just a lot more tense in your um, in the, the political kind of atmosphere and how it affected your your company and all that so anyways they're following Jesus and then they're immediately dealing with economic oppression and it's really difficult and so James's first essentially passage in his letter is to tell them hey you're gonna deal with this you're gonna be in trials you're gonna have hardships and he, he basically reminds them God is not some evil guy who's up there just purposely making your life miserable because that's what they were starting. Well, maybe God isn't good. You know, maybe maybe he doesn't really care about me or maybe he this is just he just does this. Right. And and James is like, nope, God is good. Uh, the world is evil and these things will happen no matter what. And what you should do in the midst of those, he basically pushes two things. One is that you should pray and seek after wisdom from God who will give it to you and who will give you uh, the insights and the encouragement that you need in those times that will inevitably happen. But the second thing is to find joy in the midst of those things, that in finding joy, looking to the future and, and looking past the momentary difficulty that we find a deep sense of spiritual maturity. And, and that's just beautiful. And so that's week one, but then week two, what happens is, you know, they don't really want to do that or it's difficult and they were starting to um, lash out, whether it was uh, being verbally aggressive with the people who are pressing them or, deal or having tension with them or even wanting to, to deal with some sort of physical violence. Like they were, they wanted to get even, it felt unfair, they felt, uh, it felt unjust and they were wronged. And so James tells them, hey, you need to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. And he says that human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Which, you know, when you think about it in this context, they're trying to take matters into their own hands, being the, the ultimate judge here. And God's like, hey, you know, that's not how we, that's not how we play. That's what Jesus, that's the whole kingdom of God, right? And we don't necessarily retaliate. And if we do, we retaliate with love. And so James is reminding them of that. And that's when he starts to say your your job is to act out and to follow the royal law that if you do that you when you look at yourself in the mirror you are, you aren't walking away forgetting who you are that when you choose to follow Jesus you choose to live in in and under the royal law and the royal law is what we've talked about the last few weeks and broadly speaking the royal law is just loving those who Jesus loved who are the marginalized and who James says you know is the widow the orphan the poor that's true religion to love those people but then last week, um, Tyler Green got to speak, and a good friend of ours came from Michigan, the land up north, and uh, talked about how this, this, this even in, in, in a deeper heart level and what's more and more insidious is avoiding the royal law by showing prejudice, that you treat people a certain way based on, you know, whatever, they're maybe have greater social candor or they're less awkward or they act more like you or like your common interests or are better looking or make more money, you know, whatever it may be. We have all these biases and things and some of them are conscious, some of them we don't even realize we're doing subconsciously. But in this in this culture, it was predominantly around money and they were welcoming and being nicer and giving way better service to wealthier people, which makes sense, right? Because if you've took a massive cut in your company or you guys are dealing with economic oppression, why would you not try and schmooze the wealthy people who can actually help you out as opposed to the poor. And so James is saying, hey, this isn't cool and this is this is really wrong. And in order to fight that you have to pursue, you know, what he calls works of mercy. And those are those are in line with the royal law. Now the royal law which we talked about and I will I'm gonna kind of go deeper in again today is really James's priority here. And uh he says in verse eight and nine of of chapter two. If you fulfill the royal law as expressed in the scripture, 
you shall love yourself as your neighbor, you are doing well. But if you show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. And so this passage ended with, for judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. And so that's where we start today is that reality of, of, uh, is of fulfilling the royal law, loving our neighbor as ourself. Now I've, I've mentioned that this type of idea of royal law is essentially like a, a layer of an onion where the central um, reality of the royal law is found in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy 6 and it's called the Shema. The Shema was something that every Israelite knew and recited several times a day. Uh, the word in Hebrew actually means hear, like in your ear, hear, and it was uh, that's the start of the Shema. It is Deuteronomy 6, 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. And that's like the the central core of the onion, right? That the layer that, that this is what the Old Testament hinged upon, um, and this is the reality of what it meant uh, to follow Yahweh, the one true God, was to acknowledge that He was the only true God, and that the law of doing this was to love Him with all our heart. Now, while well, all of our being is probably better defined, but um, our our muchness is the best way to describe it because that's what strength really means in the Hebrew. Is it doesn't really mean like strength, like how strong you are. It means literally muchness. So it's to love God with your very muchness which is just everything, the best you can. <clears throat> then Jesus takes this a, another step, and he not only quotes this, but he quotes another thing in Matthew 22. When the Pharisees are cornering him, trying to just trick him or to get him to say something controversial, they ask, hey, what's your, what's your opinion and what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Sound familiar? He's quoting the Shema that they all knew. And they're like, yeah, that's great. And he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. Okay. And then the next thing he says is the second is like it. So he's cheating. He's giving another answer. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, all the law and the prophets depend, or some translations say hang or hinge, depend, hang or hinge on these two commandments. So he's cheating and giving them two answers, but he's not really cheating because he doesn't see these as separate. Jesus sees... In order to love God, you love the very people that are made in his image. And by loving those very people, you love God in that. And so he doesn't see them as two separate things, but as one overarching commandment that are so intimately connected that they really are just one. It's like being a marriage becoming one flesh. Sure, there's two people, but at the end of the day, they're one flesh. Jesus is giving us two commandments, but at the end of the day, they're one commandment. They don't. You, you can't really do one without the other. That's just to, to, to hate people is to hate God. And that's, that's what Jesus pulls in through the New Testament is this deeper reality of the law's heart was meant to not just love God, but to love the very people that he has a heart for. And so that's what James is then quoting at the third layer of the royal law. And this is how you fulfill it. Now, what's really important that we understand here is we, you know, we read James and, and James doesn't really quote like Jesus a lot um, explicitly. He doesn't say, Jesus says this. He just uses undertones of his teaching. And so we have to do a little bit of work to figure out where he's going with that. But if we zoom, if we zoom out and we go back to Jesus's teachings and some of the stories about him in the gospels, we see that uh, Jesus' opinion of this is pretty similar. We start to um, deal with how, how do these, how does this royal law, how is it expressed and what does it mean in light of our faith? And so in Matthew 25, there's this story 
and he will show you the weight of these two commandments, the real law being integrated together. He says in Matthew 25, starting in verse 34, then, then Jesus, he's telling a parable. He's the king here in this story. Then the king will say to those on his right, the right were the sheep, the ones who followed him, the goats were on the left, and they were, it was kind of the separation of sheep and goats. He says, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for me from the foundation of the world. For I, and he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked, you gave me clothing. I was sick, you took care of me. I was in prison, you visited me. All these different things. Then the righteous people will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? Or thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, invite you in? We're naked and clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They're like, we have not done any of this to you. And he answers, I tell you the truth, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. So we see Jesus does not, he does not see these things as separate. In order to love him, we love his very people. It's, it's integrating deeply into one royal law commandment. So hopefully that kind of gives you an understanding of what we're dealing with here. And as James transitions from the royal law acted out as these understandings of mercy and not judging, right? In verse 14, it's going to get to this, the start of today that James is honestly being pretty pretty spicy and uh, and asking and begging this provocative question starting in James 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save them? You know, and, and I mean, this is pretty playful but pretty provocative, right? He's basically saying like, if you don't do the royal law, if you don't act it out, if you don't care, if you aren't merciful, are you even do you even believe in any of this do you even have faith now if we just pause for a second and and talk about the word faith i i've i've talked about this a lot um but it's really important that we define what the word faith means in this context because we it's kind of like the word love in america it means a million gazillion things what is faith actually implying when we read it in the text the greek word faith is pistis and uh, it, it, it's actually more commonly translated as the word belief. So faith and belief are pretty synonymous, not all the time, but most times. And in this instance, it's translated faith, but I think the, the word belief is probably better understood. And the best understanding and definition of this is that it would mean a conviction of the truth of, of anything. Now I'm saying of anything because, you know, you can have belief in something that isn't about Jesus. You could just say, I believe that this building won't fall over. That's you have a conviction of the truth of the building, right? So, it, it's to basically have fidelity over something, right? Like a a deep seated belief in in you that you know you can put place something in it. It's a conviction. It's deeply seated, and that's what the word means. So it, it it can be implying a verb sometimes to like to act out your faith or belief, but it also can be a noun. In this case, it's a noun, uh, and it matters because. James is asking, you know, when he's defining faith, we have to think about, okay, well, this conviction of truth. Can we have a conviction of truth if we don't do anything about it? That's basically what he's asking. And that's where, you know, our sermon graphic, the, the weird old green chair in it and the video of furniture being smashed in our bumper video, you're like, what the heck does any of that mean? It's all playing with this idea of, and I've used this illustration before that, uh, the simplest way to understand this idea of faith being played out tangibly is that, you know, I can I can put a chair in front of me, and I did this in service, but I obviously am not doing that now. But I can put a chair in front of me and say, 
I believe this chair will hold me up. I have faith in it. And, you know, I could do all the research about it. I could read the CAD drawings and the schematics. I could be an engineer and understand the weight force. And I could even be a materials expert and be like, oh, this is some, this is some high quality MDF wood from Ikea. Like this will easily hold, you know, up to 300 pounds. Right? I can do all that research, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really mean anything unless I'm actually willing to physically sit in the chair. By sitting in the chair, that's probably more powerful than any of the the words that I speak or the knowledge that I know. It's by the, I'm actually going to place my physical life in this. I'm going to sit in the chair and if it breaks, it breaks, but there, I'm, that's the risk that I take. And I do my best up front to figure out, is it, you know, can I have faith and belief in this? But at the end of the day, I still have to sit in it not knowing, right? And that's, that's how we want to talk about faith and understanding is as we follow Jesus, we ask ourselves, we can know as much as we want about him, but if we aren't actually willing to do anything about it in our lives, if we're not actually willing to let our conviction of the truth have any sort of legs, then do we really have any conviction at all? And so James is basically, he's playfully asking, you know, can just your words save you? Can just your intellectual understanding save you? Is that enough uh, to know Jesus's sacrifice, to agree with it intellectually, is that enough to save you? And so then he gets into this sort of playful illustration where he says in verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them what their body needs, what good is that? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And he says, you believe that God is one, well and good. Even the demons believe that and tremble with fear. I mean, James isn't, isn't doing anything that difficult to understand here. I mean, if you were to drive by, there's a lot of homeless people near 315. And if you were to drive by and we see him, I see this guy all the time, you know, and, and he needed food, which in this case, he does not. He literally has... Mounds of food every time I see them, but uh, that's America for you. But if you were in another country, let's say, and they're homeless, and they are literally like like dying of, of thirst and starvation, and it would be as sim- funny as you just rolling down the window and being like, hey, man, you got it. Go go in peace. Go eat some food. Go get, go have a drink. And the guy would just look at you like, uh, that's why I'm here. I, I need those things. And you'd be like, no, 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 you got it. Just, yeah, go do it. It doesn't. Your words don't mean literally anything. They're not going to save them. They're not going to help them. It's just a joke. It's... It's almost condescending. And that's what James gets to here when he says uh, there's these people walking around in these churches that are saying, well, you kind of have your works thing. You're a works guy. You you actually do stuff. But I'm just, I'm a faith guy. I just, I have faith. That's my personality. I don't really need to do anything. I just, I have my own faith. And James is like, that's just doesn't, that that doesn't work. You can't, that doesn't make any sense. Because how are you supposed to show your faith? He, that's why he says, I'll show you my faith by the thing, the works that I do. That Not always does that mean just because you do good things doesn't mean you have faith. But I can certainly show you I have something by what I do. How in the world is you having faith not meaning anything? How is that going to be shown? And then he, he has this haunting statement where he says, you know, you're basically worse than a demon. Because even demons believe in God as one, like in the Shema, right? We believe God as one. But even they tremble because they know the reality and the power of God and what it means to follow him or not. The very people who just say, well, I just have faith. I don't really do anything about it, right? Are worse than demons because they're disillusioned themselves farther than an understanding of God that demons have. I mean, this is this is uh, pretty harsh. Like, it's pretty haunting. And that's the superficiality of their faith is that... And so he's like, you just, you need to turn away from this callousness. 
And, 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 you know, this, this thought we sometimes read and we're like, wow, James, you're just kind of mean, man. I don't really like that. Right. But if we go back to Jesus and we talk about his, his primary understanding of the kingdom, his first teaching he ever gives the Sermon on the Mount, which we talked about a couple years ago, he ends that, uh, in Matthew seven, this long sermon on the, the kingdom and what it means to be a part of it and the ethics of the kingdom. Right. He ends it with these last two stories and, and they're, they're very much in agreement with this. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do many powerful deeds in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evil lawbreakers. And that's like, that's sobering. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to unpack there. I don't have time to talk about that. I mean, that passage I've taught on it and it's, it's got a lot going on. But if we just look at it at face value, he says, not just saying, Lord, Lord, not just like this intellectual, hey, like I'm God. That doesn't, that doesn't what is that going to do? Right. And I know there's, oh, there's passages in Romans that talk about, well, if I just say the name of the Lord Jesus, Lord, I'm saved. And I, I there's another long conversation for that. But Jesus here is saying, look, it doesn't matter what your brain thinks. Your whole soul and body and strength and muchness needs to come under faith of who I am and what that means in light of that. And that's why he says, only the one who does the will of my father. Because the next ver- the next line is confusing because it says, well, didn't we do these? We did these things. We prophesied. We cast out demons. We did many powerful deeds. And he's saying, yeah, but you never knew me. That when you know me, you know the Father. When you know the Father, you want the things the Father wants, and the Father's wants are his will, and that's what you align yourself with. And and there's this there's this tension that he gives us that that we we wrestle with. And then the next that that that, that one's rough enough. And then the but the next one is the last passage in the whole teaching. It's his conclusion, if you will. And he says that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. He's like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And then he says, rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat up on the house. And he says, the man on the rock, the foundation did not collapse because it was built on the rock. But the man whose house was on the sand, it collapsed and it was utterly destroyed. And so Jesus closes with this. And he doesn't end his teaching with whoever agrees with my words is right. He says, now that that's like baseline. He says, whoever does them, whoever puts them in to practice. And so he says, there's no faith in these words. They have to have a reality of practice being put into them. And so then James gives us these examples of this. In verse 20, he gives us two people he uses examples of. Uh, it says, but would you like evidence? you empty fellow, that, that faith without works is useless, or even he said dead. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that his faith was working together with his works, and his faith was perfected by works. And the scripture was fulfilled. It says, now Abraham believed God, that, that um, believed, it would be a different Hebrew understanding, but kind of similar idea, believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he uses another illustration. And similarly, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another way? Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works 
is dead. Now he's giving us two examples here, honestly complete polar opposites. You have Father Abraham who's got many sons, many sons has Father Abraham, right? This big guy in the, the Israelite faith. I mean, it's just, he's like the father, right? So, but he has this one son, he, he's willing to sacrifice him. And in that willingness, that's where his faith is tested, his belief, his conviction of truth. And because he was willing to do that through his actions, it proved the weight of his faith. And that's kind of this sense of saving, right? But then they use Rahab, who's a woman prostitute, who literally, I people are probably angry she's in the Bible, is this complete other social class importance. And she basically steers enemies away from, from trying to kill Israelites. And so her faith is rewarded because of that. And both of these people are basically, in, in James' mind, saved through their faith, right? Through their acts of righteousness. And it's kind of encouraging to know that anybody is capable of that, right? Regardless of if you're Abraham or a lonely prostitute like Rahab. Uh, but at the end of the day, it still begs the tension that we deal with, which is... What is the relationship between faith and between works? You know, it, James almost seems like he says one thing and then he kind of reels back and says another thing. And sometimes they seem like they conflict. Like he said that faith was working together with his works in which, and it perfected it or it completed or matured it. Um, and, and so you're like, oh, okay. But then later he says that uh, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now that very statement is the questionable problematic statement in the book of James that has caused uh, massive disagreement with theologians with with I mean honestly if you want to know the difference between an evangelical Christian and Protestant Christian which is our church you know we believe that that grace is given and that faith is grace alone uh, by given by God there's nothing that we can do to attain it uh, to clean ourselves up for it it is fully given by grace alone the Catholic tradition would disagree. They would have a lot more interplay between the relationship between works and doing the right things and faith and that being part of your salvation. Okay, and so I'm 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 painting in a very large brushstroke. So if you were raised Catholic or you know Catholics or you are Catholic, uh, I'm not trying to be instigative here. But that's the that's kind of the bare bones truth. So this is a really big verse because you're like, well, it's saying it's not grace alone. But then Paul several other times in several other letters says faith is explicitly by grace alone. So what do we got going on here? And uh, on Sunday, I, I played with this tension um, and it's just difficult. I, it's funny, you read, I read a lot of different commentaries and you know different opinions on this, different stances, and they, they wrestle with it too. I mean, they asked all these questions like, is faith the foundation of works maybe? And if so, why doesn't James just say it like that? Are works maybe a dimension of faith? Is faith nearly the same or identical with works or is faith a work in itself? And if it is, is it just a demonstration of the presence of faith or the work itself intrinsically? Then the last question I love they asked was, why then do non-followers of Jesus have just as many works as followers of Jesus? Which is very true. I don't know about you. There are people in the world that I meet and I'm like, you're a better person than me and you don't love Jesus. And I don't understand how in the heck you can do this because... I I thought of my power was from Jesus alone and you're just over here winning at life, right? And so that's what it feels like. And all these questions are valid. All these questions are real. And, and at first they feel like this is just ridiculous and it's silly and like, are we that worried? But I mean, we got eternity is on the line here, right? Like if we can't define what is faith, what is saving, what is belief, what is then salvation, then we are in a pretty gray area of of what it means to be saved, which is a big deal. 
for many of us, and I mentioned this, it, it, we many of us grew up on the era of the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer, uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar, is basically like the the sort of um, means at which you would you would enter into being saved. And so maybe you're at like a, a church camp or a conference, or you were listening to a teaching on a Sunday, and they would give you the gospel proclamation. You know, Jesus died for your sins. You can't do it without him. You need to accept his sacrifice on the cross and his power over death and his resurrection. And if you believe in this, then you kind of pray this prayer. They call it the sinner's prayer. And it typically goes something along the lines of that is, I acknowledge, Lord, that I'm a sinner. I need your grace and your saving work that was done on the cross and that I want to live in eternity, you know, with you. And then, amen. And then there you go, right? Like, boom, count them on the saved chart, right? And that a lot of us have, have literally done that. Some of us have done that more than once. I remember being a youth pastor in Arizona, going to camp every year. And, you know, four years in, little Johnny raises his hand for the fourth year in a row. And I'm like, Johnny, my man, you are good, dude. You are extra good. Like, he's just the kind of guy who it will buy volcano insurance in uh, living in Ohio. It's just like, you just, but, he, but at the time, it's a big deal, right? He's like, I want to know for certain. I want to be 100% that I am saved. I don't want hell to even be a question. I want heaven to be my my confidence. And And like you said, we're not... A lot of us feel this way, right? To certain degrees or others, some of us can sleep better at night with a little bit more of a gray. But we are Western rationalist modernists. We want definitive answers. The East is not so concerned with this. They're a little more mystical in this. The spiritual realm is not as uh, airtight, pinned down as we like it. Uh, but it all just it all just deals with this tension and it comes down to the okay what is the relationship between faith and works because james here is making it sound like if i don't do stuff i don't get stuff done if i don't do good things then i'm truly not saved or i'm not i don't have a saving faith and so i'm going to go two routes with this because like i said this has been a uh, an argument and a debate for hundreds of years so i'm not going to fix it in five minutes but i'm going to go two routes one is i'm going to give you what i think james cares most about in this writing which is not necessarily to argue all of the differences and the second one is i'll give you sort of a the way that i've communicated uh faith our soul in light of all of this and how we best i think understand this in a healthy way in kind of my own that's my whiteboard analogy so the, the first part james i i think what he's really getting at here is he's not actually that concerned with all the problems. Like he's not concerned with um, the relationship between the two. What he says is, look, if you don't have faith without works, he says it's useless, it cannot save, it's ineffective, and it's dead. It is it is unfathomable to him if we were arguing about, well, can I just get away with only doing this or only doing that or not doing anything? Like he would just be like, no, like that's not, it's not even a question to him that if you surrender your life and belief and every, all your very muchness to God, and, and what his way is in his kingdom, it would be no question that you wouldn't do and want to do the things that are a part of that kingdom. That's just how it works in his mind. And so what we get to is this kind of conclusion where I think he would agree with this statement that, that works or the actions of good things we do may well indicate the presence of faith. Now I say may well because like I said, there's still people who do good things objectively that are not Christians. But, but he says the absence of of works proves the absence of faith. So we know that, that the works and the actions that we do can very well be fruit and prove the reality of our faith in our hearts, right? Like the things we do, people can look at that and see, oh, that's fruit. Now, sometimes that's fruit. That's not true fruit, right? It's it's false or it's 
selfishly motivated, but at the end of the day, there's fruit that we can evaluate. But if you have no fruit at all, you are like the fig tree that Jesus curses, where you obviously have an absence of faith. It is 100% obvious. So though we can't always pin down, oh, you do these good things, therefore you must be a Christian, you must be saved, you must have belief, you must love Jesus. That's not always the case. But you can certainly say, if you have no fruit, and if you do not have any of the the fruit at which Jesus calls us to to engage with then then clearly you're just you don't care you don't get it there's something there's a disconnect that's going on that matters deeply and that and I, I've talked about this same sort of idea when we talk about generosity I've, I've said before very similarly that generosity may well indicate the presence of this gospel belief in your heart meaning I know lots of philanthropic people that don't love Jesus, but they still are very generous, right? But if you are generous, it may indicate that you have this deep gospel belief. But the absence of generosity proves an absence of a gospel belief. Because literally the entire foundation of the gospel is generosity. I mean, you can't, it's like the very air of the gospel is, is, is God being incredibly generous to sinful humans. And so for you to say, I subscribe to that, I believe in that, I have a conviction of truth around that, and then to be live your entire life as the stingiest person on earth, like you just, it, it, it's, you're not. You're just, you're not. You don't believe in the gospel because the gospel is you submitting to the generosity in the air and it becoming the very breath of your lungs. And, and, and so if, if you're not generous, you don't give whatever, right, all these type of things, like it, it, I'm sorry, but it's, it's a massive component of the gospel of generosity and the illustrations I use I mean we've I've talked about the gym illustration before but I mean imagine if you were talking to your friend and you're like hey I'm a gym rat man love working out love getting a sick pump working on the body I love studying um, you know physiology and nutrition and I read all these books I watch all these podcasts about working out and different ways to do it and your friend's like oh no way man that's so cool what's like what's your what's your favorite gym where do you work out at and you're like oh no 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 I don't I don't actually work out. I don't go to the gym. I just, I'm a, but I'm a gym rat. Like I love the gym, man. I love working out. Love it. Love studying it. You would, you, your friend would literally be like, bro, you are not like you don't work out. And so none of this matters. If if you don't work out, then then all the crap that you know means not absolutely nothing, and it's only probably gonna puff up your ego or build an, a security in you that that is trying to fulfill some sort of like insecurity area, right? Just go work out, man. Even if you go there and you got to do this, the funny looking reps, like you're better off doing that than just saying, oh, I know the correct form, but you've never touched a weight in your life. It's the same thing in marriage. When you get married to just say, hey, I want to, I want I love you, babe. I love you more than anything. And like, okay, great. Can you maybe take out the trash? And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Sorry, I don't do that. But I love you. Would do anything for you. But actually, I'm not going to take out the trash. Like it just, then your love means nothing. Your love is nothing. It's just words that mean literally nothing. It's the same thing with kids. Hey, I love my kids more than anything, right? You say, oh, I'd, I'd run in front of a bus for them, but I won't change a poopy diaper. Then you don't really love them. Like, I don't know how else to say it. If we took a jury before you and said, do you love your kids? And you weren't even willing to change a diaper. I don't think anybody would think, man, this guy has a deep conviction of truth that is love for his kids. And so as we, we start to think about that in our faith, right, we can immediately get to where I'm kind of going with this idea that I want to show um, that I'll, I'll put on the, the you know, in the, uh, in the notes. And I've, I've talked about this idea of, of basically these three 
uh, components of faith, of belief. And so the word pistis, belief, conviction of truth, paired with what Jesus talks about in the royal law, in the Shema, which is that we love the Lord God with everything. Whether Whatever translation you read, whether it's strength, heart, mind, soul, our, our muchness, that everything about us uh, is, is under the love of God and loving his people. If we, if we act like that is belief in truth and faith, in saving faith, is that we subscribe to Jesus as Lord and Savior and saving us and, and, and subscribing to his royal law, and and the the ethics of the kingdom right and and the inclusivity of that then then that that is that is where we start and and then we define soul like i've said the hebrew word nefesh which means you know it's not just like this spiritual thing but it's everything if we do that then i I like to break it into three parts that i think are helpful uh the three are you know maybe you've heard the the heart the head the hands or you know it can be better described as you know the heart because i you know we we talk about the heart sometimes as an interplay with the soul, but the heart in this instance is probably more just like our emotions or our feelings. So our heart is what we feel, our head is what we think, and our hands are what we do, right, our actions. So it's our feelings, our our intellect, and our actions. Those are the three in this circle. And what happens is good faith, good belief is all of these things, our muchness, our soul, all submitting in their own appropriate ways to belief in Jesus and his lordship. Now, that, that can be done several ways, right? I can believe and I can I can feel as though Jesus loves me. I can feel as though I have a belief in his gospel, which is very different than I can intellectually get there. Uh, you know, you might be able to believe evidence about Jesus being real and being a real person, like I said and uh, before, and, and you but, but you don't feel that, right? Then you have a, a detriment there. You might be able to feel that Jesus loves you and that you felt his power that you believe in it and you know the truth theologically and you are a nerd and you studied the, the research in the Bible and right, but you don't do anything about it, then your your doing is at a detriment. And so what I'm arguing here is not that everything needs to be perfectly well-rounded all the time, but all three of those are all a component of your soul and all matter deeply. And when you read the whole narrative of the scripture, you're going to see that all these things matter. Jesus will talk about our hearts and knowing him and being in relationship with him and knowing the heart of the Father. He'll also say, you got to do this stuff. And then he'll also say, other times, you need to know my words, right? And, and, and Israelites were, were great at knowing the law. Even the women had to know the laws to keep the kitchen kosher and all that and know all the you know, ceremonial stuff. Like They all knew it, right? But they, they lacked this sense of heart. And so there's a detriment when we prioritize maybe two out of the three and have a, a serious lack in the other. And this is where we get into then the un, unyokedness of, of, of the three. And so the Pharisees, you know, what were they good at? They were good at knowing and doing. They crushed it. They knew all the laws, had to memorize, had the Bible, like just just knew it front and cover, right? Well, not the whole Bible, but the Old Testament. Uh, and then they did all the stuff. My gosh, they fasted three days a week, gave money to the poor, tithed their spices, you know, all this stuff, right? So they did all the things, but their heart was just fully about themselves, fully about the way they looked, their pride, right? And so they are hypocrites. And Jesus says, you are far off from the kingdom. Like you are missing the heart aspect, Okay. And so then what happens is, and, and I think we've experienced this kind of trajectory shift. We've done this over the several hundreds of years. But in like the 70s, 80s, even 90s, people started to push back on this kind of thinking. And so what happened was uh, you started having these people who's, um, you know, were the Jesus movement, right? Like this radical heart surrender, right? And like our heart 
is is just needs to be given over and then we just need to start doing all of these things and there wasn't like a lot of theological understanding it was just sort of hey I, I, I my heart feels a way about Jesus and I love him and I'm gonna do these things and that's what you get that's called you know I, I kind of call the the mystic or even the humanist like I do good things because it's important but I don't really know why I'm actually doing them it's like the people who are like well we casted out demons we did all this good stuff and he's like yeah but you didn't know me you didn't know anything about me you just were doing these things and that's the this the, even the spiritual buffet person I feel a certain way about Jesus I will do the things I want to do but I don't really want to go through the knowing of the truth I don't it might deal with you know going against my own truth and I don't want that and then the last camp, which is the most recent camp that we've been dealing with, is the 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 spiritually fat Christian, the lazy, apathetic. I feel I know Jesus loves me, and I'm motivated by my feelings and my emotions and my passions, and I I know a decent amount. I mean, I would even say even then we don't even know that much theologically. But you just sit around with knowledge and with feelings, and you don't actually do anything about it. Like you're just lazy, and you believe the cultural lie that we're taught which is if your heart isn't in it you should never do it because that's fake and that will create this sense of like robotic living and like i said if james was sitting in a room with you talking about this he would literally just like not understand what you're talking about because he would just be like those are all the same they're not they're not you know and they're not different so what they do is they this type of lie perpetuates lazy apathetic no stakes christians and, the, and James is dealing with the same thing in the first century because people were wanting to say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to do anything about it because of the difficulty or the hardship or the ramifications. And in the same way, we have lots of people, you know, who we've, we've dealt with that, who uh, play the get out of jail free card for Jesus. They hold him to the side and they never actually follow into this deep, whole soul muchness of the conviction of truth and belief. And that that's what I think we need to get to and that's what I think we need to wrestle with. And like I said, it's not like every day you gotta have 33.3% of each of these, but I, I think we have to take serious that there are areas of these areas of our lives that we have either not surrendered over to Jesus in our belief of him and what he does and what the gospel means. And there are areas that we just, whether we're, our personality leans one way or the culture is really taking advantage of us, the, our upbringing, our, our trauma and abuse, like all these variables are at play with that affect our ability to have this full righteous relationship and knowing uh, that is in relationship with Jesus. And so for you and a kind of the reflection that I, I, I probed for us was just, hey, think through these like where is there an area where maybe you even felt like i haven't really surrendered over like maybe you've been the spiritual bum who's like coming to church wants to feel good at worship wants to learn in a bible study bible study bible study bible study but you literally don't serve at all like you don't do anything you have no skin in the game physically but maybe you're someone who will sign up for anything and everything right but you're like nah i don't want to read a book i don't like reading books i don't want to study the bible it's you know i get it god loves me I get it at a cursory level, like I'm fine, and you just you're just, you're just not willing to learn, you know. Or maybe you're someone who right now is doing the right things and knows you've been a Christian for a while, or you get it, but you feel like, man, my heart's just not there. I don't, I'm not yearning for quiet time. I'm not wanting to love the people I know I need to love, and so you're just like you're just kind of giving up, or you're just saying, well, my heart's not in it. I guess I just am not a real Christian, right? You start to doubt your your belief, and so what I want to close with and encourage you with is just this idea of thinking that. That recently, you know, you've heard this trend of you aren't what you do, which is just not fully true. Uh, it's not 100% right, but it's not fully wrong because you are what you do. If you, uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, if you go 
rob a bank like you are a robber now your your identity at deepest value is still a child of god potentially but but it matters right it's not like oh it just doesn't matter and and you there's another belief that you know you are what you feel and that also is is true not fully wrong but not fully true or there's another one that's you are what you know right the knowledge that you have is who you are and i think all of those matter and all of them don't matter on their own by themselves uh they need to be interplayed together and that's what i get i think gets to the the most accurate depiction and that is you are what you love you are what you love sums up all three of those and gives you an understanding of what i love is what i put my time into what i put my heart and my emotions into what i put my knowledge and my thinking and my understanding into are you what you love and what you love determines um, what you know, what you feel, and what you do. And sometimes those things aren't all in perfect balance and you have to just continue in that journey of, am I loving what I love? Like, am I, am I leaning into what I want to love? And so that's what I think James is getting at. He's just steering us back to our true love. Do we love Jesus in that way? So I encourage you to process through that and think through those areas and how your faith should be shaped, your belief and conviction and truth should be Am I loving what I believe to truly love in all areas of my life?